Don't hole up in your in your classroom. Go out into the hall and just watch kids. And you can tell right away who's fitting in, who's not, who's struggling. Just talk to them. Let them know you see them because so much of their day is like they're invisible. Welcome to the Good Around Us podcast. Here we share stories of people doing good for communities. I'm your host, Stephanie Keeley. Kevin Hoffman had a childhood defined by race. Growing up in Detroit just after the 1967 riots as a black man in a white adoptive family, he lived it. And he describes his childhood as a good one. Now he shares messages of compassion and cultural intelligence with others. Along with his personal stories, Kevin and I have conversations on race, embracing differences, and being gracious with ourselves and others when we get it wrong. Here's Kevin. Welcome, Kevin. Thanks so much for coming on to the Good Around This podcast. Thanks. Thanks for having me on. Well, I um, am just really excited for you to get to share your very personal story and the work that you're doing from that. So I'm not going to go any further. I just want to let you get started um, from the get-go about what, what it is that brought you here. What's your story? The story begins 54 years ago in August, two weeks after the 1967 riots in Detroit. I am born out of an affair between a white woman and black man. They were co-workers in uh, one of the Chevy stamping plant in Livonia, Michigan, the suburb of Detroit. Um, I like they worked in the cafeteria together. He was a cook. She was a cafeteria worker. Uh, I like to think they fell in love over a vat of potatoes. Probably not likely. Um, (laughs) But the only caveat to my mother being pregnant was she had to go home to her white husband and explain to him that she had had an affair with a black man and she was planning to have the child. And so that's what they did. And his stipulation was that uh, he would not raise me and that she would have to immediately put me up for adoption. So I was adopted by a white minister, his wife, and they they have three biological children. I'm the youngest in their family. Um, Like I said, I was born in Detroit. We lived in the suburb of Detroit, Dearborn, Michigan, uh, where my father was an associate pastor at St. Paul's Lutheran Church. And the community in the church were not too thrilled with the fact that this little biracial child had come into their community. So that began a challenge for us. Um, Three years into that, my parents decided this community is going to change us before we change it. And we moved, you know, five miles away to Detroit. Uh, My father took a church on the northwest side of Detroit. um, Gracious Savior Lutheran Church. And uh, where the parsonage or the home that we lived in was in a black neighborhood. So from age three to 18, I was always around kids that looked like me. And that was life changing. So because I came from such an interesting place and I'm kind of, I'm not kind of, but I'm a mix of, you know, my white mother and black father. My life's work has become, how can we figure this thing out, this race Mm -hmm. thing out? And so that's what I spend most of my time doing now. So you know, setting the stage there, you said that the family moved, your family moved to Detroit just after the 1967 riots, which were among the, the most 
violent in the in U.S. history. So, you know, I'm curious what that was like. And you moved into a predominantly black neighborhood, correct? Yes. So what yes. was what was childhood like? Interesting. So defined by race, quite honestly. Um, and that's really Detroit's history. Detroit is, I mean, you know, the large reason why so many people of color came to Detroit was for the jobs and they became very black very quickly. Um, after the riots, you know, they called it white flight. A lot of white people left to move out into suburbs like Dearborn. And so, uh, yeah, it was an interesting time to grow up where Detroit is just, it's interesting. There's growing up and even today, there are very few diverse neighborhoods in Detroit. There's white neighborhoods and black neighborhoods and Mexican neighborhoods, but very rarely will you see, you know, diverse neighborhoods. And that's just part of Detroit's history. So an interesting place to grow up, interesting time to grow up where, yeah, it was this biracial kid living with a white family in a black city just weeks after the city was burning because the races couldn't get along. How did your family navigate that together? Yeah, talking to my mom today, she'll tell you it was the toughest thing was trying to find a place where everybody was celebrated. I mean, mm-hmm. in the white neighborhood, they were celebrated, but I wasn't. And when we moved to the black neighborhood, you know, I think my brothers felt picked on because they were the minorities. Um and so that was a struggle for us. Where where does this unusual family, this multicultural family, where do we fit in? And quite honestly, we never found it. Um, yeah, so that was a struggle for us. I was so fortunate that I grew up around kids that looked like me because uh, they showed me that Black was so many different things. It was... They showed me the many hues of what black was when I didn't have to depend on, you know, 1970s TV to tell me, you know, what black was, which there weren't a whole lot of great role models on TV at that time. Mm -hmm. Um, So, yeah, I was fortunate to grow up around black kids that really helped teach me black culture. And uh, and I can tell you, I remember at three years old moving into that black neighborhood and just feeling this sense of home. That, oh wow! Know, around people that not only look like me but could understand my life experience, and so that's one of the biggest messages I try to get out there today when I go to talk to schools and organizations. Is you know, just because we all don't have the same experience doesn't mean it didn't happen. And as a person of color, I'm often challenged when I say, "Hey, this happened to me," and I think it's because I was black. And then I get challenged with, no, you got that wrong. No, you're being too sensitive. Yeah. As a person of color, you became very, you become very keenly aware of the very, very subtle slights of race and racism. So I mm-hmm. identify it very easily and very quickly. Mm-hmm. My, as a white woman, I don't have that same race experience, but I, it, what you're saying makes sense to me because I'm very keenly aware when I'm being treated differently than say my husband would be treated. Exactly. It's the same and exactly. yeah. And I, and sometimes I'll retell something and I'll say, you know, I know this sounds subtle, but let me just say, like, l- let me retell how that happened. And, and it's, and it's different than what my husband's experience is as a man or how that person would have spoken to him as a man. Yeah. And so that makes sense. 
my biggest thing is if we can just share our experiences, then maybe we can find commonality. And it is. So, yes, I think it's totally the same thing where, yeah, you can say, let me share how that hit me. Mm -hmm. (laughs) This is what I heard when you said that. Mm -hmm. And people are shocked. And but I think that's where we all can grow, where we can say, you know, and have that freedom to say, I know you didn't mean it this way, but this is how I took it. And this is why I took it this way. Right. And I think those are the great conversations that, you know, I love getting into with the organizations and schools that I work with. Well, let's get into that. So given this lived experience um, and a, and a, a biracial individual growing up in a white family in a black neighborhood in Detroit. So you have this lived experience and what are you doing with it now? Yeah. So what I'm doing with it now is just sharing those experiences. So I wrote a book 12 years ago about our experience growing up in Detroit as this multicultural family before multicultural families was a term. Um, And, and it was just, and I remember sitting down to write the book and one of the very, the most important thing I wanted to do was to share my experience as a person of color in this country. And I knew that that was going to be a challenge because I didn't want people to start reading the book and go, no, it's too much and put it down. And so the strategy behind this, the book, and when I go out and speak is just to tell stories. And so I tell stories about growing up as this black kid in a white in a white family, in a black neighborhood. And then at eight eight years old, we then moved into a white neighborhood still in Detroit. So just life has been so defined by race for me. And to explain, you know, this is how it was growing up. And then just give, you know, simple stories, a lot of coming of age stories in the book. Um, I remember writing the book and I could, I would constantly hear, uh, one of my favorite movies is the Christmas story. Mm -hmm. And I love how that's done because you get to hear Ralphie's thoughts. And so I just, I remember writing the book and thinking that, well, okay, so here's the action. And I would tell a story. And then after the story, I would say, okay, at eight years old, that's how it hit me. But now as an adult, this is what I see was going on there. um, When it, as it pertains to race. And I, it's worked well. People have really gravitated to it, been able to learn from my experiences, and uh, and hopefully it's made the world a better place. We'll see. What's one of your favorite stories, or what do you, what story from the book do you think is most impactful that people have really grabbed onto? It's interesting. So the book is written kind of from different viewpoints. Where, so I'm this black kid, but then I'm also an adoptee. And so there's a lot Mm -hmm. of things where I'm written, it's written from the adoptee point of view. Uh, And so there, yeah, there's a, from the adoptee point of view, there's a story that always gets me about, you know, my mother was a big stickler for, we couldn't just sit around. We always had to be doing something. So she would always put us in these sports leagues and I hated baseball, but I always played and I wasn't good at it. So one of my favorite I can, stories. I, I can relate. I did not like baseball. Yeah. I was so afraid of being hit by the ball. Yes. Um, and so, yeah, in one year I was on a team and to my dismay, we made the championship and I just wanted the season to be over. Mm. Um, and I just, and that was 
this was too back in the seventies and eighties where coaches were just horrible. Mm -hmm. Uh, They would just yell and scream at you. So I had a coach like that. And, uh, and part of my experience too, was that my white father was an ump in the league an umpire and we horrible at, but no one knew he was my dad because we didn't look alike. And so he would sometimes ump my games and I would have to, I didn't play a whole lot. So I would sit on the bench next to the coach why the coach would yell and cuss out my father who made a bad call. And he didn't know. He didn't know. No. So that was just a (laughs) horrible experience. Uh, And my dad was not good at it at all. Um, (laughs) And so we get to the championship game and uh, we're, it's a close game. And I just luckily stuck my bat out and it hit the ball. And uh, I, three guys scored, the bases were loaded. Three guys scored. And I round the bases, I get a triple. And I remember standing on that base, fighting back tears. And it was just, that was that little adoptee in me just finally saying, man, you got it right. Mm-hmm. And uh, yeah, and so someone hit me home and I ran home and we won the game. And it was just, it was wow. the most impactful story for me. When I look back at it, and I can't tell the story without crying. I know. <laughs> because just to look back at that and see that little I don't know, eight, eight or 10 year old kid. Proud of himself. Yeah. And just being like, man, you got it right. Where so many times, you know, you, you know, your own mother didn't want you is what adoptees tell ourselves. Your own mother didn't want you. So why would anybody want you? And so mm-hmm. to be able to do something right and yeah, to stand on third base and go, yeah, you got it right. Yeah, it was impactful. So that's yeah. a powerful story. It's my favorite story by far in the book. Wow. And the, yeah, and the, the other story, which I really like, it's the great lesson when I go out to teach is um, when I was eight years old, we moved from the black neighborhood to the, a white neighborhood, still in Detroit, but now it's all white. I'm the Jackie Robinson of this neighborhood. And I was fortunate that my best, he became my best friend tall, skinny, white kid across the street from us, directly across the street. And I remember knowing him for two or three years and thinking at eight or at 10 or 12, man, so much about me is about is tied to who I am racially. And I want to mm-hmm. be able to share that with my best friend. But I also know the conversation on race can get really sticky. And if I bring this up to my best friend, I could lose his friendship. But it got to the point where I was like, but this is who I am. So if I can't share this with my best friend, then who can I share it with? So I remember, man, spending a lot of energy about having this conversation about race with my friend and uh, sitting, you know, in front of our house, having this, and then just saying something like, man, I think Mrs. Matt's the horrible woman down the street who chases all off our off her yard I think she doesn't like me and I think it's because I'm black and I didn't I wasn't asking for a debate I was hurt Mm -hmm. and I just wanted my best friend to hear that and his and his response was great he just said yeah you might be right let's go play some basketball and that's all I needed I just needed to vent that to him and then I could go on with my day and he was there just to hear that Mm mm-hmm And he became a safe place for me um, where I knew that I could come and talk to him about those things. And I wasn't going to get judged. I wasn't going to be told I was crazy. And I wasn't going to have to debate whether I got it right or wrong. 
that's that's great that you had a friend who you could just say it and not be yeah. judged for it. Yeah. And so that's like I said, that is one of the biggest messages, especially when I go into schools with teachers is, you know, how about you become the the district that, yeah, you've done, you do, you know, academically, you guys are great. But how about you become the district that's just known for being compassionate so that when kids are hurting, you go to them and you give them compassion. And so it's it's as simple as saying to the child that you as a teacher see doesn't fit in every day, just going to that child and saying, I see you. Mm -hmm. So that, yeah, that's, and that's what Mike did, my best friend. He simply said, yeah, I see you. So you go into schools, you work with adoptive agencies, you work with teachers and school districts and, and kind of teach these messages. Is that right? Right. Yeah. So what does it take to be the school district or the school or the company or the family that is compassionate, that is inclusive? Looking at things a totally different way. Here's a great story. I'm working with the district now and super one, it's great because the districts that I'm working with now, I have the support of the superintendent and the leadership. If I don't have that, it makes it a whole different experience. Um, And so the superintendent called me late one Sunday night. There was an incident um, across social media, uh, a bunch of, and this is a very, very uh, academically, they're one of the best districts in Ohio, um, but a very white district as well. Uh, And and not only do they struggle with race, but they struggle across the board. And so, uh, the superintendent called me and said, yeah, I just got notification that there's something going through social media around the district. Uh, I guess a bunch of uh, white boys got together and they started raiding the girls in the school. Um, and this was done on Snapchat. And so there were these messages back and forth between all these kids. Um, and then it got into this very anti-Semitic language about one of the students Um, and so the superintendent called me and said, what should we do? And everyone gets so concentrated on, we have to go after who caused the damage. Right. My message to him was, let's not concentrate on who caused it because the news, and that was the thing is that the news constantly goes to this district. They, they do monitor what's going on. And so as soon as something happens, they call the superintendent. And so the news was calling and I said, so your message to the news isn't about the person that caused this. Your message is we are hurting as a district because one of our own is hurting. And so this young girl who's been in the district forever is the target of some very hateful words. And so I said, so the message should be, we're going to rally around her. We're not going to concentrate on who caused all this. And that's how you become more compassionate is you flip things and you don't spend all the time on, you know, of course you're going to address that, but become the district that's known for a safe place, no matter who you are. And so that means when there's trouble, you go to the person who's in trouble. Yeah. Yeah. So often we want to look for who's to blame and what are you going to do about it? And, you know, here we are in cancel culture. Okay. Well, you're out, but you're saying, Hey, let's focus on who's been hurt. And 
what's their experience and how can we make this a better, safer place for everyone? Yeah. 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 And, and I can tell you as a person of color, and I share this message with teachers, especially is I can go through all the teachers I've ever had. And I can tell you one by one, whether I thought they were a safe Harbor, whether I felt safe as a person of color in their classroom. And I said, and I've had this conversation with a lot of my black friends and they can do that as well. So that should tell you something that it's on our minds enough that we can, that we are, will assign kind of this, this is a safety zone. Mm -hmm. Uh, That white neighborhood that I grew up in Detroit, I live in Toledo, Ohio now, but I went back two years ago uh, to celebrate my best friend's mom's 80th birthday party. Um, And I could go down that street one by one, house by house, and I could tell you the Garcias, that wasn't a safe place for me. The Tembushes, that was a safe place for me. Um, Yeah, the Galettos wasn't a safe place for me as a child of color. The corner store where I was accused of stealing the one and only time I went in there, that no longer became a safe place for me. And so, yeah, so that's a big message for schools is, you know, are you a safe harbor? Yeah. And 15 years, will these kids say you are the teacher that they felt safe around? So that's that's a feeling you have, like where you can just say, okay, this teacher, that's a safe, a safe harbor. It now that you're doing the work, are you able to pinpoint what it is that that teacher did or said that gave you that feeling even years later? Yeah, there's a story I share about college i went to an all-white you know small private college in the middle of michigan um alma college 1100 students only 13 of us were black moving from detroit to that experience was culture wow yes and i remember one of my professors uh he must have seen that i was going through um because one day I came into class and just out of the blue, he said, hey, have you ever heard of the Chicago Seven? And the Chicago Seven was this amazing group of black guys that, you know, protested inequality and, you know, big in the civil rights movement. Um, And he said, yeah, you should check them out. He, He very, like, I didn't even figure this out till I was an adult. But he very subtly had seen that I was in pain (laughs) Mm. and what he was doing was giving me something to grab onto and say, "Okay, I've come from guys like this. And because of that, I can go anywhere and make it. And that act, it was just a simple act that he saw me. And man, that meant a lot to me. And so that's yeah, that's the thing. I the biggest lesson I would give teachers is. In between classes, just go out into the hall. Don't hole up in your in your classroom. Go out into the hall and just watch kids. And you can tell right away who's fitting in, who's not, who's struggling, and those that are struggling and not fitting in. Just talk to them. Just let them know you see them because so much of their day is like they're invisible, that they just kind of go through life because people don't see them for who they actually are. 
And then when you gain relationships, then you can have those conversations about race or their gender identity or whatever else. And that's the big lesson I teach schools, too, is that, yeah, we need to have some tough conversations, but we're not going to have tough conversations with strangers. So if you're not Mm -hmm. in relationship with people, don't have these conversations because it's it's futile. Because neither of you has enough to lose if they're if that person is no longer in your life. So that's why social media doesn't work. It's because you're getting advice from strangers who will never see you. They're not, mm-hmm. you know, invested in you. And so they say horrible things because they can. They can get away with it. Yeah. I mean, there's just, it's not personal. People just blast out words. Yeah. And there's no consequence to that. Mm-hmm. They, they never have to see you. They never have to be in relationship with you, around you. So it goes back to building that trust, creating safe spaces. Um, and that's how we can really create a more inclusive environment and, and allow space. And as you're talking about children specifically and how we're, how we're engaging with children, we need them to be able to share when they're hurting or what they're struggling with. And you have to create the environment where they can do that safely. Exactly. And man, as a, as a person of color, when I go into predominantly white environments, I am eager to talk about race Mm -hmm. because it's such a big part of me. And so I'm just waiting for someone to bring it up. And most of the time it doesn't get brought up because people are so afraid that they're going to say the wrong thing. How should people bring it up? So that's the message when I go into schools and organizations is we have to create a safe space so that people can say things and fail. We have to understand they're not always going to get it right. Let that sit for a minute. We have to be able to fail. We have to be able to say it wrong. Exactly. So that people can say, like we talked about earlier, so I can say, okay, I know you said, you know, I don't see color. I get what your intent was behind that, but this is how I hear it, that my culture, my, my culture and color don't really matter to you and such a large part of me you don't want to see. It's really mm. hard not to be offended when, when you put it that way. So I'm not saying don't see me as I am. I'm just saying see me as I am. Mm. Right. And someone might say that thinking, oh, well, I'm, you know, I'm, I care about all people. I don't, I don't see any differences, but what you're saying is let's see the differences in each other and let's accept the differences in each other and even celebrate the differences. That yeah, we all celebrate the differences in each other. And there, there's a shirt I made that says, if we see the world from different angles, whose view is correct. And, and then on the back, mm-hmm. it says, uh, diversity eliminates our blind spots. Because you as a woman can see things that I as a man can't. So if we're in a relationship and we talk about those things, you can help me <laughs> when I'm around women not to say stupid things. <laughs> like, <but> it's <laughs> the same thing. That yeah, so when we're in a relationship, then I can say, yeah, Stephanie, how about you say it this way next time? Mm-hmm. Because this is how it's hitting me. Mm-hmm. And I think that's where, again, you're in relationship with people, you care about people. And so you don't want them to go out there and, you know, offend somebody or be hurt by somebody. So you look out for them in that way. And I think that's where the real growth happens. 
Yeah. You know, it's, it's interesting. What's coming up for me a little bit is you, you mentioned the story about your best friend when you're about 12 years old and saying, can I actually talk about my race? And you were able to, and that got me thinking, well, gosh, nowadays, I, I think we talk about race more, but we're still struggling with it. Yeah. Culturally, we're still really struggling with how, how we in our, engage and how we interact from, from a racial perspective. And so I, you know, I wonder, is it, is it that so much is online and digital and we're not in relationships. So we're, we're talking about it more, but it's not from a relational standpoint. We're talking about it more digitally. We're talking, talking oh, yeah. about it surface level, um, instead of as human beings. Yeah. And I think that's it. And to just the big, one of the biggest messages is understand that just because I experienced something differently doesn't mean it didn't happen. So that's, that's the biggest, the biggest lesson with race and racism I have, which is, you know, when I share just like I did with Mike, yeah, I went to the store and, you know, I think that cashier, I think, you know, there was something going on there. I think she treated me a little funny and I think it's because I'm black. I don't want to debate whether I got that right or wrong. Um, like mm-hmm. I said, I've been very well trained in noticing race and racism. I have 54 years of experience there. Um, so I don't really want to debate that. But I, I want people to hear my experience and not dismiss it. So, yeah, yeah. when I say that, the best response is, yeah, you might be right. But un- un- unfortunately, what you get is, now it's not always about race (laughs) or no, you got that wrong. You're being too sensitive. That's not what that person really intended. So you have um, grown up with a lot of identities. I'm curious, what do you identify with the most? And this throws people. um, So I identify black, not biracial. Um, for a number of reasons. One, I didn't know I was biracial till I think I was early 20s. So a lot of my identity formation was done. Um, so you didn't know your biological parents growing up? No, no, no. Okay. Um, and then the other reason was Detroit was just so defined by race that there was no in-between. So there was Black especially in the seventies, it was black Mm -hmm. and white. And I understood very early on that I would never pass as a white person. So then it became, so what community do I have the best chance at surviving socially? And it was the black community. So I really gravitated towards that. And that's how I identified. And my biggest fear growing up, I remember was, that the only community I thought would accept me, the black community, would point to me and say, he's a fraud because I grew up with white people. And so I spent a lot of time studying black culture from a distance, just watching. Um, And like I said, fortunately, I just fell in love with it right away where I felt at home and just enjoyed being part of black culture. And, and then being adopted as well. I think that's, you know, that's another unique perspective that you have. Yeah. And to understand the impact of that, which it has taken me 
40 plus years to figure out is that, you know, one of the, I talk about this when I do my adoption trainings, which is, I call it adoptee residue because when I grew up, the instructions from the agency to my parents were just don't talk about adoption and he'll be fine. We now know that's not true. Like I was only in foster care for three months, but the separation from my biological mother, we now know, yeah, it's going to have a long, a lifelong effect on a child, whether you were (laughs) with that mother for a period of time or not. But I was carried by my mother for nine months. Um, And so, yeah, it's that. So as an adoptee, that has been a lifelong struggle for me because that shows up in relationships. So because my mother, my biological mother, for whatever reason, chose to give me up. And I understand logically, I understand the reasons why. And I understand that I had a better life with my adoptive family than I would have with my biological family. I get that. But still emotionally, it's hard to, to understand that your own mother didn't keep you. Mm-hmm. And so that has created a struggle for me in relationships. And it's not just dating relationships, but it's relationships with my kids, my wife, mm-hmm. uh, people I work with, people I work for. I mean, it affects all of that. What strength has it given you? To just push on. Like, that's the one thing I really... I was asked that question at, at a panel not too long ago, which was, so what are you so most proud of at, at being a person of color? And it was mm-hmm. just resilience that all that, you know, people of color have been through in this country and we're still here, we're still fighting. And for the most part, we are actually very compassionate people. Um, yeah. And we're just looking for, you know, a fair shot. And so it's given me that resilience too kind of withstand some things and keep going. Well, I'm so glad you found that resilience and, and then done something with it. You know, this, on this podcast, we share about people doing good for communities and certainly you're doing that with the work you do. And I'm curious, what has been the greatest impact that you've seen from your work, sharing your stories and um, sharing these messages of compassion and developing safe spaces? So it's little successes where you see a student for the first time have a voice. I've seen that with the school that I worked out in New Jersey, a kid who the way he identifies, you know, as far as gender is not accepted by most. But through meeting with him and his group, yeah, he was much more comfortable after the four weeks we all met to just be who he was. And so it's little successes like that where you can go, okay these kids are going to be okay. And if, you know, if we can touch one or two kids that way and they can go, yeah, my experience there wasn't that bad. I was able to share who I am fully and that's enough. And so those things you can't really measure. No, but I I think they're the most important. I, I talk a lot about, you know, the small changes, those, those little ripples, it creates the big change. And as you've shared so much today, it's about individual experiences. And so if you're touching one life, that's important and it might save a life even. And that's, that's huge. So thank you for the work you're doing. Oh, thank you. 
Is there anything more you'd like to share before we let people know how to engage with you and get connected with your book and your work? No, I think you nailed it. It's just those little successes that just mean so much that, I mean, you know, schools always ask me, so where can we start? And I tell them the easiest place to start is in curriculum. Go to, you know, uh, the English departments and see what the assigned reading is. And really look critically at that. And if your reading examples or the, the assigned reading comes from one perspective, you need to start including different perspectives. So, you know, the biggest debate mm-hmm. now in schools is on critical race theory. And I don't get into that debate. All I ask is that schools just tell accurate history from different viewpoints. So we can still tell the Columbus story as long as you tell it from the viewpoint of an indigenous person. Like, allow them a voice to tell their side of the same story. Mm-hmm. I think that's where, yeah, giving kids voices in an environment which, you know, not all voices have been heard. And I get it. You know, I, I wrote a book. And of course, I'm the hero in the book. <laughs> so now we just need to find different authors. To right. Tell, tell, tell their stories. Yeah. Yeah. So I always close out with a quote. It, what is the quote that you love? Um, the one I really like lately, it's, and I don't, there's more people out there that have said profound things, but it's one that really strikes a chord with me is Martin Luther King. When he says, no, I won't remember what my enemies have said. I'll remember the silence of my friends. And, uh, and I, I'm dealing with that at work now where, you know, I've gone. So I, I have a day job where I'm an insurance adjuster and I've gone to one of my bosses during all that was going on with George Floyd and all that. And I was asking them, so what's the company's viewpoint? What's your statement? What are you going to say? And the president decided not to say anything. And I just remember hearing Martin Luther King say, I will remember the silence of my friends more than anything. And I just thought, wow. Yeah, staying out of that conversation isn't going to get you what you think. I learned so much from Kevin and the experiences he shared, and I feel grateful to have had what could have been a set of tough conversations with a person who is open and humble. To engage with Kevin's work, find his book, or connect to his social, go to his website, growingupblackinwhite.com. To continue hearing unique stories from compassionate and generous guests, be sure to subscribe to the Good Around Us podcast. And on Apple Podcasts, please rate and review. You can also follow us on Instagram at good.aroundus to join the conversation and let me know what you'd like to hear more of. Thanks for listening to the Good Around Us podcast. Until next time.